When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 112, Artistic Revolution. Today, we explore a strange phenomenon as Amunhotep IV, aka Akhenaten, upends centuries of tradition to explore a bizarre new style of visual expression. Grab your turtlenecks, your glasses of wine, and your astute observations. It's time to talk about Amana art and all the wonders it provides. This episode is brought to you by Stephen Bone and Steve Lemire, in gratitude for their donations to the podcast. Stephen, Steve, thank you kindly. Your generosity is most appreciated, and you help keep the show running. Offerings will be made to Aten, so that his blessings may shine down upon you and your household. Also, thank you to Paige and Sandra, who became patrons of the podcast. Paige, Sandra, you are too generous. May the Aten hold life and power to your mouth, so that you may breathe deeply of his gifts. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the show. Oh, and I do recommend visiting the podcast website for this episode, where you'll find images relating to the discussion. Since we're talking about art and visuals, it's probably going to help to have some pictures. It's there if you want it. The year was 1925. In Italy, Mussolini was beginning his dictatorship. The US saw the first publication of The New Yorker magazine. And in Germany, the Bauhaus School of Art was relocating from its original home in Weimar to the city of Dessau. There, founder Walter Gropius had designed a new building, a bold place from which to spread the artistic movement. 1925 was an important year in certain cultural circles. This was certainly true in Egyptology. In July of that year, a French architect named Maurice Pillay was directing an excavation at Karnak Temple. Pillay was in charge of a conservation project, hoping to protect Karnak from rising groundwater. He and his team were working in an area that was thought to be empty of any monuments, perfect for a modern drainage system. How wrong they were. 
Early in the month, Pile's workers stumbled upon the head, shoulders, and torso of a statue. It was huge, about six meters or twenty feet tall in its original state, and it depicted the pharaoh Amunhotep IV, more commonly known as Akhenaten. With his crown, headdress, and cartouches, not to mention his distinct visage, the king was instantly recognizable. The statue was not alone. Further excavations revealed more than 30 colossi of the king, originally set up in a temple complex at Karnak. Many of them were fragmented, broken into pieces, and cast down by the ancients. Buried and forgotten, these statues had survived in this empty patch of ground. Now, they returned to the light. The discovery was certainly an important one. It gave Egyptologists a whole new corpus of material from which they could study this king and come to grips with his mysterious, baffling story. Forty years later, other excavations expanded that corpus when they unearthed thousands upon thousands of blocks. Decorated sandstone bricks came to light in the ruins of Karnak and Luxor temples. These bricks showed traces of Amunhotep IV's remarkable monuments that had once graced the sanctuaries of Thebes. Once again, the king's body of work became ever clearer, better attested, and over decades of research, scholars were able to examine this body of work and come to some interesting conclusions. Today, Amana art, as it is now known, is one of the most distinctive corpuses in Egyptian history. Chances are you've seen the strange face of Amunhotep IV, aka Akhenaten, with its heavy, narrow eyes, long pointed chin, and full pouty lips. This pharaoh is a world away from the serene, formulaic images of traditional pharaohs. In a thousand small changes, Amunhotep broke with established conventions and created something new, something totally personal. What makes Amana art so distinctive? What is it about this king that defines an entire cultural trend? Like some kind of Bronze Age Bauhaus, Amana art stands as a unique visual style and a marker for a time, place, and movement. Today, we're going to find out why Amana art deserves such an honor, and more importantly, what exactly makes this king so instantly recognizable among 3,000 years of pharaohs. The year was 1359 BCE. Regnal year 4 under the majesty of Nefer Keperu Rei Wa Enrei, Imen Hetep Necher Heker Waset. Amunhotep IV, the god who rules in Thebes, was in an interesting place creatively. After a slow start, Pharaoh was now following his unique path confidently and brazenly. His policies were bold, and depending on your perspective, they were either innovative or radical. Maybe both. Either way, it wasn't long before the king's strange ideas started to manifest in the artistic culture of Egypt. At the start of his reign, Amunhotep had used art in a fairly standard manner. He showed up in non-royal tombs, making offerings to the gods and reigning as monarch. Artistically, he was indistinguishable from his predecessors. Once he started to build his temples, though, that began to change rapidly. 
The very first images of Amarna art show up at Karnak, on the decorated blocks which once adorned the temples of Aten. Carefully excavated and painstakingly restored, those blocks now reveal a vast gallery of images relating to the king's strange style. At this moment, Pharaoh began to unveil his personal vision of art. As bricklayers erected the walls and colonnades of these temples, the pharaoh himself summoned his artisans. Speaking to sculptors, masons and craftsmen, the king revealed a new vision for representation. He had already created new theologies and religious spaces, now he wanted to reshape the visual culture of the land. Let's start with the basics. First of all, Amunhotep wanted to change his own public image. It began with his facial features, which were now altered in a drastic way. The king's head became longer, almost stretched. His eyes were narrower, with heavy lids and a sort of almond shape that took up a lot of space on the head. The king's cheeks were sharp, angular. His lips became plump, with a triangular profile that dominated the lower half of his face. Even the nose was reshaped, turned into a sharp, pointed proboscis. Finally, the chin and jaw transformed from a square or rounded naturalism to a distorted, bulging point. Basically, sculptors accentuated certain features, minimised others, and put emphasis on different forms. Along with the face, Amunhotep also reshaped the human body. A host of alterations to people's physiques began to appear in the new art. I'll keep it simple, but in summary, the changes to human bodies were as follows. 1. The torso was lengthened, making the upper part of the body dominant visually. 2. Heads were enlarged, or embiggened, and they had longer necks. This gave the top part of the body a stretched look, making the individual seem thinner and more extended. 3. The shoulders and waistlines were narrowed, waists and butts became smaller. 4. The belly now drooped slightly over the waist and belt. Again, this emphasised a sense of length, taking out flat horizontal lines and introducing more curves and verticals. 5. The arms and calves became slimmer, as if the individuals were slightly malnourished. Simultaneously though, the thighs became larger, much closer to female proportions, even on masculine figures. Essentially, the legs were no longer stocky athletic appendages, now they were more voluptuous, images of abundance in a physical sense. These are the basic alterations that Amunhotep made. I'll explain the technical details of what he changed in the epilogue for those who are interested. For now, the key words seem to be exaggeration and length. The new style accentuated the vertical and limited the horizontal. No more stiff, broad-shouldered muscle men, Amunhotep wanted to show himself as something more evocative. They say real women have curves. Well, so do real pharaohs. Changes to two-dimensional art were varied and numerous, and we will return to this subject in a future episode, once we get to the city of Amarna. For now, the basic gist is that the king's vision expressed itself in an unusual style of representation. Physical changes were sometimes extreme, distortions of the traditional imagery. The question is, what was the king trying to achieve with all this? We'll answer that in just a moment. 
But in order to find that interpretation, we also need to look at the king's three-dimensional art. Staying at Karnak, we need to study the colossal statues, discovered in 1925, which once formed a major part of Amunhotep's temples. Those statues are important, and thanks to years of research, we can see them in a whole new light. The grand statues of Amunhotep IV, commonly referred to as the Akhenaten Colossi, were erected at Karnak in the temple called Gemat Pa Aten, or That Which the Aten Has Found. We explored this temple in episode 110. Gemat Pa Aten was the centre of Aten worship in Thebes, and it is where excavators found the magnificent statues of Pharaoh. The statues show the king in a regal posture. He stands feet together with his back to the columns. A pleated kilt wraps around his waist and legs, emphasising those broad thighs and the drooping stomach. His arms cross over his chest, holding the crook and flail of kingship, and adorned with bracelets stating the names of Amunhotep himself and the god Aten. On his head, Pharaoh wears a series of headdresses. Sometimes he wears the cut or bag headdress, a sort of pouch which hangs behind the ears. Other times, he wears the nemes, the cloth wrap which hangs over the shoulders, and is a famous pharaonic symbol, the one you see on King Tutankhamun. These headdresses are complemented by crowns, including the double crown of Upper and Lower Egypt, and a series of feather crowns, like those worn by the god Shu. Shu was an ancient primeval deity, principally associated with air and with light. The symbolism of Shu is important to Aten and to Akhenaten, and we'll get into the religious meaning of these statues later in the episode. For now, just know that Amunhotep was playing with religious imagery on these colossi, and anyone looking at the statues would have recognised that implicitly. Put together, the headdresses and crowns are towering symbols of royalty and divinity, which would have caught the sunlight and emphasised Pharaoh's majesty for all to see. Physically, the Akhenaten colossi are remarkable for many reasons. Firstly, they are immense, 5 to 6 metres tall, or 16 to 20 feet, from base to crown. That puts them up there with some of the great images from the 18th dynasty, top-tier sculpture from some of Egypt's most famous rulers. Originally, these statues stood on plinths or podiums, so that they towered over the viewer and forced you to gaze up into the face of the king. As we'll see in a moment, this size, and the perspective it forces on you, has a noticeable effect in how the viewer receives the pharaoh. Secondly, the statues are remarkable for their design. Amunhotep's colossi are distinctive, sharing many of the strange physical features that we saw in the 2D art. The statues show, in three dimensions, how the king actually wanted to present himself. They have the thick thighs, narrow waists, slender arms, and exaggerated busts of his wall carvings. They also have the long necks, elongated faces, and general androgyny that characterises the king's ideas. Simply put, these statues are not male in a conventional sense. Pharaoh appears as something else, straddling a line between masculinity and femininity. Why does he look like this? Well, we'll explore that together. No doubt you've seen many images of Amunhotep IV over the years. 
exhibitions, photograph collections, books, tourism posters, and pretty much any image search for ancient Egyptian art will turn up some example of his peculiar iconography. It's not hard to see why. The king is distinctive and captivating. Whether you love him or hate him, he is an interesting figure to look at. However, there is a problem. You see, most photos and images show the statues from the front, in the perspective of a viewer looking directly at his face. Museums and art galleries lower the statues, bringing them closer to your own height so that you can see the details. Unfortunately, this is wrong. You are not supposed to see the pharaoh face to face, eye to eye. You are meant to look up, seeing him from below. Originally, these statues were about 20 feet tall, and they stood atop plinths or podiums to give them even more height. Unfortunately, this means that we tend to see the king differently from the artist's intention. When seen front on, the king's facial features are unusual. The ears seem too high, the eyes are angled down, the nose is long, the cheeks narrow, the mouth is sharp, pointing downward in an inverted triangle. Even the chin seems way too long. Look at them from below though, and the effect changes radically. From down here, the king's facial features seem less distorted. The chin is smaller, closer to normal proportions. The cheeks are broader, commanding your attention in a way they didn't before. The eyes still seem narrow, but not as severe. They seem to be looking into the distance, gazing at something unseen. Finally, the ears, which seemed too high, now line up properly with the nose and mouth, creating a sense of harmony between the edges and the centre of the face. It seems that Pharaoh's artists made a conscious effort to compensate for a viewer's perspective when designing the statues of the king. They altered the proportions to accommodate distance and height, and in doing this, they created an image that is quite different from the way you normally see it. Naturally, this has a massive impact on how you perceive the king. Examining Amunhotep's statues, scholars have noticed how much perspective changes the effect. Nicholas Reeves, for instance, observed how, quote, when seen from below, the peculiar distortion of the king's face is far less apparent. Instead, the impression is one of unadulterated power. Another scholar, Lysa Manish, noted how, quote, Far from being a haggard, elongated face, it becomes full and well-proportioned, with an almost benevolent smile, end quote. In other words, viewed from the proper height, Amunhotep doesn't seem like an absurd caricature. Instead, he looks more like a ruler, distant but self-assured, commanding in a uniquely royal manner. Once we take a step back and see the colossi from the right perspective, the king's overall appearance is changed in subtle but powerful ways. Instead of a strange, out-of-sorts face, we now see something broad, calm, and altogether powerful. Instead of severity, we see confidence, Instead of darkness, we see contemplation, a divine being gazing into eternity. As you can imagine, different people have spilled a lot of ink over the years trying to understand Amunhotep IV's art. 
Ever since the king was rediscovered in the 1800s, scholars of all sorts, from Egyptologists to art historians, medical professionals and even psychologists, have attacked the mystery in different ways. The results are pretty varied, some quite reasonable, others quite outlandish. But people continue working on it, and it's possible that we're getting closer to the truth. Seeing Amunhotep's statues for the first time, with even a basic understanding of Egyptian art, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that they are weird. For a long time, scholars were confused by the style and depictions, and many people assumed that these bizarre appearances were a literal image of what the king looked like. Decades of viewers, from art historians to Egyptologists, have tried to deconstruct the statues as if they were photographs of the king, capturing his real appearance. As you can imagine, that faulty assumption led to all kinds of theories. In earlier times, Pharaoh's strange physique was thought to represent a physical deformity, perhaps a genetic disorder. In this idea, the art of Amunhotep was not an idealised image, but more of a portrait, an attempt to capture the reality of the individual. This theory doesn't carry much weight today, not because it's flawed, but because proving it would require us to have the mummy of the king so that we could make comparisons. To date, that mummy has not been satisfactorily identified, and the one potential body shows none of the physical characteristics we might expect. The second interpretation focuses on the symbolism encoded in these statues. Comparing Amunhotep to traditional Egyptian art, Egyptologists have started to ask, what if the strange physical features of the king are symbolic, communicating a specific idea? Once that question came up, the answers seemed easier to grasp. Amunhotep IV used androgynous, even feminine imagery. That much is clear. Looking back at earlier periods though, examples of this androgyny are more common than you might expect. Certain gods, for example, show similarities with the statues and carvings of the king. One god, Harpy, really stands out. Harpy, lord of the Nile and master of growth, often appears in art with some of the same physical characteristics that we see on Amunhotep IV. For example, Harpy has the heavy breasts, thick thighs, and extended belly we see on the king. These features are not exactly the same, Pharaoh clearly adapted them, but they are noticeably similar to his art, and they hint at a possible relationship between the god and man. We can also see similarities between the colossi and the traditional images of Osiris, king of the underworld and lord of agriculture. The statues tend to show Amunhotep standing feet together with his arms crossed over his chest. In his hands, the flail and crook, or heka meaning ruler, are the scepters of his power. This is the same posture we conventionally see for the Lord of the Dead. Osiris carries those implements and stands in that fashion. We've seen earlier pharaohs use the same pose in their own art. In the temple of Deir al-Bahari, Queen Hatshepsut erected massive statues of herself in the costume and pose of Osiris. Interestingly, the statues of Hatshepsut are very similar to those of Amunhotep. She appears wearing the double crown and false beard, and she holds the crook and flail over her chest. The statues have the same posture, feet together, up against square pillars. The only difference is that Hatshepsut's images wear a white robe or shroud wrapped tightly around the body, 
Amunhotep discarded that, but everything else is essentially the same. These similarities might hint at the king's motivations. It's possible that Amunhotep IV was borrowing iconography from different gods, Osiris for the posture and design of the statues, Hapi for the body shape and features. When you look at the colossi of Amunhotep IV, and try to see what is similar to Egyptian art rather than what is different, you do start to notice parallels between what he did and what pharaohs before had tried to achieve. Was the king appropriating divine imagery to express his unique vision? Quite possibly. The only question is, what is this vision that he was communicating? You may have noticed that Osiris and Hapi are both gods of fertility. Hapi, the Nile, watered the farmland. Osiris, the deceased, helped the crops to grow. Both deities have a profound connection to the natural world, and the prosperity of Egypt depended on their divine grace. It's possible that Amunhotep IV's statues are designed to make the king the focus of Egypt's fertility cults. His androgyny, a mix of the masculine and feminine, may communicate the idea that Pharaoh, the divine ruler, was the true cause of Egypt's fertility. The Egyptians didn't equate fertility with femininity in a way that other cultures have. Some of the most fertile gods of all are beings like Harpy or Osiris, masculine deities with very distinct iconography. Heck, even the original creator, Atum Re himself, had brought the universe into being through a male reproductive act. It's possible that Amunhotep IV, for all his difference, was borrowing something quite well understood in order to create his royal image. Taking the posture and icons of two powerful gods, Pharaoh may have been placing himself at the centre of the natural world. The king's physical features, exaggerated and unusual, might convey an idea that Pharaoh was something more than ordinary, something not quite human but divine. Perhaps Amunhotep was borrowing from older symbols in order to express something new. In this interpretation, the king decided to abandon stale conventional art in order to take imagery to strange new places. His message was quite similar. With their unusual features, Amunhotep's statues and his art generally were markers of the king's special status. They communicated something to the viewer. The king wasn't a man, he was a god on earth, and gods did not look like humans. To the ancients, such messages may have been self-evident, expressions of an idea that was well understood. From the perspective of a mortal looking up into his face, Amunhotep may have truly seemed like the Netcher Heka Waset, the god who rules in Thebes. So a major interpretation today is that Amunhotep's art emphasises certain ideas and conveys these in very particular ways. Of course, many people have their pet theories, and I don't expect we'll have a full consensus anytime soon. But in academic circles, some Egyptologists see the art of this king as less of a grotesque photograph and more like religious propaganda. Pharaoh was communicating something, and the more we learn about his works, the clearer that something becomes. We now come to the end of chapter 1. 
After the break, we get a chance to meet some of the people who helped put this artistic revolution into practice. Pharaoh could decree all the changes he wanted, but it was still down to artists to make that happen. In chapter 2, we meet a man who worked for the Pharaoh, and may have been taught by him directly. Also, we see one of the first places where Amana art made the abrupt shift from royal to private use. That is chapter 2, after the break. See you in a moment. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The art of Amunhotep IV, Akhenaten, is a fascinating display of innovation or radicalism expressed by a unique individual. And for most people, that's all it is, a royal initiative worthy of curiosity. But to fully understand the movement, we do have to look outside the pharaoh's mind. To get a handle on these changes, we need to look at some of these smaller stories which made up 99% of ancient Egyptian life. Interestingly. Once the new artistic style became popular, extending beyond the king and his family, the changes could be quite abrupt. We see this clearly in a tomb west of Thebes, where a member of Pharaoh's court commissioned a burial chamber for himself. Within that sepulchre, a remarkable moment was captured in stone. Cross the river Nile near Karnak Temple and head towards the cliffs. You will soon come to the foothills of western Thebes. Here, Hundreds of tombs hold the secret burials of courtiers, nobles, officials, and their families. This vast necropolis with many different areas and suburbs contains some of Thebes' most prominent individuals. It is here that you'll find the tomb of a man named Ramosa. Ramosa, or Born of Ray, was a high official under Amunhotep IV and his father Amunhotep III. Ramosa was one of Egypt's viziers, the Chati, of which there were two, one for the north, one for the south. We'll explore his job in a future episode when we talk about the government. For now, it's enough to know that Ramosa was politically powerful, quite wealthy, and served closely with the king himself. We see that quite clearly in his tomb. Ramosa's tomb is fascinating for two reasons. 
First of all, it's huge, a massive space, well beyond the ordinary burial hall. Secondly, it has a wonderful array of art, including a surprising set of scenes which show the transition from traditional style to Amarna style in quite a radical fashion. If you go to Ramos's tomb today, you pass through a small doorway and enter an enormous hall of columns. The space is a huge rectangle, stretching away to left and right. On the far left, a long scene shows a funeral procession, in which women tear their clothes and throw sand over their hair. Quite a famous painting, which you'll probably recognise. On other walls, we see Ramosa and his wife, Merit Petar, sitting before offering tables, along with their family, parents, siblings, etc. They are dressed like wealthy Egyptians of the day, long braided wigs, full-body dresses and robes, bracelets and headbands for adornment. Ramosa himself wears a short beard on the chin, and frequently wears the long, heavy robe of the vizier. His face is calm, smiling, his nose has a small bump at the end, just like the king Amunhotep III, whom he served. For all intents and purposes, it is a conventional tomb of a wealthy official. On one doorway though, the door leading to the burial chamber, we encounter an interesting phenomenon. This door is flanked by two scenes, each showing the pharaoh Amunhotep IV in a moment of royal appearance. The artwork, though, differs radically between the two sides. On the left, we see Amunhotep IV in the conventional style of Egyptian art. He is seated under a canopy with the goddess Ma'at behind him. Pharaoh looks traditional, just like his father. If you didn't know any better, you wouldn't think there was anything unusual about this man. On the right-hand side of the door, though, the situation is radically different. Here, we see Amunhotep IV and Queen Nefertiti in the act of rewarding the tomb owner. They stand at a window in the wall of the palace, and they pass golden collars down to Ramosa. Servants place these collars on his shoulders and arms. The vizier raises his arms in praise, or hesi, for the great king. The thing is, this entire scene, and only this scene, is carved in the strange fashion of a mana art. Ramosa's tomb provides one of the first examples of Amunhotep IV's artistic revolution carved in a non-royal setting. We've seen it on the walls of temples and in the shape of giant statues, but this is different. This is a private individual, removed from public view, using the king's new style to mark his place in the royal regime. Ramos's tomb is one of the first to show the new style of art outside of a royal setting, and it doesn't disappoint. Not only is the style on full display, but it shows a lot of details that add to the effect. For example, we see Amunhotep and Nefertiti beneath the life-giving rays of the Aten, who shines down and holds the symbols of Ankh, life, and Was, dominion, to the couple. Their bodies are long and lanky, heads pointed and angular. They wear translucent robes, revealing the narrow waists and wide hips, which Amunhotep, in his religiously androgynous symbolism, liked to use. Ramosa himself also looks quite different. Instead of his braided wig, he wears a skullcap like a priest. His facial profile has changed as well. Now, his nose is hooked, his head is elongated, he has the almond-shaped eyes of the king, and the thick, fleshy lips. 
Compared to the other scenes in his tomb, Ramosa looks like an entirely different person. Behind the vizier, ranks of officials and courtiers bow to pharaoh and queen. They raise their arms in praise, congratulating Ramosa on his happy day and acknowledging his immense social status. We also see a group of foreigners, probably Syrians, raising their arms in praise of the vizier. It's not clear if this is literal, like reflecting a real event, or if it's symbolic, suggesting that Ramosa has power over foreign lands and peoples. Either way, the effect expands the scope of the scene. It's not just one man being praised, it is a political heavyweight receiving his reward from Pharaoh on high. The tomb of Ramosa is a fascinating place, well worth a visit the next time you're in Egypt. Apart from its size, it has some of the most beautiful art ever commissioned by a non-royal individual. You can see a bunch of images on the podcast website, which I gathered from the original publication of the tomb, to which I've provided a link. Chances are, you might recognise some of these paintings. They are among the best of the era by any measure. Ra Moses' tomb speaks of how suddenly things changed. The shift from traditional art to new art was quite abrupt. As you can imagine, this was probably a serious headache for the artists who had to create it. Amunhotep's artistic revolution forced a whole generation of sculptors and artisans to unlearn everything they had been taught. They now had to deal with a new way of designing things. What was this experience like? Well, we have a small idea, thanks to the testament of a man who worked directly for the king and learned the new style of art just as it was coming into fashion. I want to introduce you to the royal craftsman Beck. Beck, or Bach, was a sculptor, a chief of sculptors. He served Pharaoh as a leader of the artisans who shaped great statues and made carvings on walls. With chisel and hammer and a lifetime of learning, men like Beck were the tools of Pharaoh's grand plan. Beck is an interesting figure because he provides one of the few examples of a person who worked, or claimed to work, directly with a king on his artistic program. We've met other men like Amunhotep son of Hapu who served their pharaohs in grand fashion, but Beck is a rare individual who speaks of personal involvement with a ruler on something quite distinct. When we meet Beck, he appears on a rock carving in the region of Aswan, aka ancient Abu or Elephantine. Carved into a rock face directly below the old cataract hotel, an image of Beck and his father shows them in the act of worshipping their rulers. On the left, Beck makes offerings to Amunhotep IV, aka Akhenaten. On the right, Beck's father, Men, makes offerings to Neb Ma'atre, Amunhotep III. Beck inherited his position from his father, and the two men formed a mini dynasty of sculptors. They served two great pharaohs, and their legacy lives in this small, out-of-the-way carving. The father, Men, appears in miniature, making offerings before a statue of Amunhotep III. This statue is probably one of the colossi of Memnon, located at Thebes, and it is possible that Men was one of the sculptors who designed and worked on those statues. The royal official Amunhotep son of Hapu directed that overall project, episode 101, 
but Men, the sculptor, may have been responsible for the artistic elements of the statues themselves. If so, Men's work endures, 3400 years later, in the colossi that remain west of the Nile. Nice work, Men. Beck, meanwhile, inherited his father's position around the same time that Neferkeperure wa Enre came to power. On the rock carving, we see Beck making offerings before the famous ruler. This stela was carved around Regnal Year 9 of Amunhotep IV, when he had already changed his name to Akhenaten. Later on, anonymous people erased the figure of Akhenaten and the cartouches which held its name. But while Akhenaten was erased, the figure of Beck was left intact, with the result that he now makes offerings to a ghost, a shadowy figure chiseled away from the scene. Beck served Amunhotep IV well, and he may have been central to the king's artistic revolution. While the pharaoh was changing his physical features, proportions, and iconography, he still needed servants to carry that vision out. The king wasn't going to carve all the decorations himself. With that in mind, men like Beck probably worked alongside the king to plan the many scenes and get a handle on how exactly Pharaoh wanted to look. At some point early in the reign, Beck would have come to the palace, answering the summons of the king. There, he would have received instructions about the new plans and how art was going to look under this ruler. We can guess this happened because Beck's rock carving actually includes a caption where the sculptor calls himself Quote, an apprentice whom his majesty himself instructed. That is an interesting epithet which does not show up very often. The only question is, what does it mean? Does an apprentice whom his majesty instructed refer to a professional relationship between the pharaoh and sculptor? Did Amunhotep IV teach Beck how to convey the artistic program that he wanted to implement? We can't be sure exactly, but... Other officials from the reign show up with a similar epithet. A royal architect named Ma'anakht F also called themselves an apprentice whom his majesty taught. There are only a few individuals with this epithet, so it's possible that these were the select group whom Amunhotep IV chose to help implement his vision at the beginning. So it's definitely possible that Beck and men like him were the first wave of servants to work on this pharaoh's grand but strange design. Beck has another monument, apart from his carving at Aswan. A small stela, now in Berlin, shows the sculptor and his wife standing side by side. This stela is small but significant, because it shows Beck in quite a realistic style. The sculptor stands front on, facing out of the stone, and his face has the grave expression of someone who has reached middle age or later. What's more, Beck is quite fat. A rotund belly protrudes, and a flabby chest adds to the impression of a man with easy access to food, and not a lot of physical exercise. His belly is so large, so heavy, that it hangs over his belt, and his kilt fans out below it, long pleats extending in straight lines. Beck appears alongside his wife, a woman named Taheret. We don't know anything about her, except that, like her husband, she appears facing forward, and in a distinctly natural fashion. She has the wide hips of a mature woman, a flat belly, and a prominent bust. In the words of my generation, Taheret is certifiably thick. 
Her hair is huge, possibly full of secrets, but definitely a pseudo-royal style. The hair, or wig, falls forward over her collarbone, resting on the top of her breasts. It is so thick and lustrous that it covers her shoulders entirely. Her face peeks out of this mass, a round but pleasant visage. This wig is quite similar to the sort that we see on Queen T and Ramesside queens later on. It's possible that this was a particular fashion of the day, and Taheret was imitating the royal woman in order to seem like a more prestigious lady. Unfortunately, the paint on this stila is all lost, so the details of Taheret and Beck's appearance are gone. But they seem pleasant, a mature couple with dignified bearing gazing at us from ancient history. The fourth regnal year of Amunhotep IV, king of Egypt, was an important one, both politically and in cultural terms. The artistic revolution that he implemented and which swept the upper echelons of society was profound, but it's hard to fully grasp the significance today. In the 21st century, where novelty is the default, New movements and styles seem to come and go quicker than ever, and the impressions they leave can be remarkably fleeting. For Amunhotep's contemporaries, maybe it wasn't so simple or expected. The transformations he wrought were extraordinary, and if you had access to the places where it was visible, a strange new world seemed to be revealed. As Regnal Year 4 ended, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt was in a unique position. His policies had become bold, radical even, and his choices would have a profound impact on theology, artistic culture, and royal policy for generations to come. With so much change, so quickly, you may start to wonder, what did other people think of all this? Did they accept it gracefully, or was there pushback and resistance? Well, no innovation ever succeeds without challenges, and Amunhotep IV was about to learn that the hard way. Join me soon for episode 113, in which Pharaoh's strange decisions begin to catch up with him. After four years on the throne, the king seems to have experienced some kind of disturbance when people in the court started to react strongly to what he was doing. How this reaction manifested and what impact it may have had is the subject of our next episode, titled Ark en Aten. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or any app that you use. Reviews help other people find the show and also decide whether they want to listen. If you've already reviewed the podcast, many thanks. If not, consider helping us out. Thank you. Oh, and stick around after the music for a brief epilogue. When Amunhotep IV decided to change the visual language of royal art and propaganda, he was embarking on an incredibly complicated process. The new art took a while to implement, 
and as you might expect, the earliest attempts were kind of haphazard in their quality. Although the king could decree his vision, actually putting that into practice was tricky. In fact, if we go to Karnak and see the decorations, you'll notice a surprising amount of variation between different scenes. Amunhotep's face is the most visible mark of the new style. It was the first part that the king changed to reflect his ideas, and it was also the most difficult to get right. Looking at different scenes, Pharaoh can appear either graceful and aloof, or quite grotesque. Take his chin for example. Sometimes it tapers to a sharp but precise point, other times it is a bulbous lump at the end of his jaw. His cheeks can appear emaciated, his limbs slender to the point of lanky. His eyes can be dark and enigmatic, or hollow and sinister. His mouth can appear sensuous, even cruel, depending on the perspective. All of these features change from scene to scene. It seems that different sculptors had different interpretations of the royal command, or some of them had a better grasp of the concept than others. Whatever the cause, the variation between Amunhotep's facial features is startling, and it makes the king and his ideas quite hard to pin down. We should feel some empathy for those men, and they probably were men, who were tasked with creating the pharaoh's new vision. They had been educated in a very specific visual language, one that had lasted for centuries and had served every king of Egypt since the days of Namer. Now they were being asked to change every aspect of what they had learned thus far. For those of you who are interested, this epilogue includes a brief rundown of exactly what it was that Amunhotep changed which makes his art so distinctive. We've run through the basics, now let's get into the details. To the casual viewer, Amarna art is recognisably Egyptian, and it seems to draw from an established tradition. But looking at scenes from this king, and even some of his successors, you do feel that things are just a little bit off in certain hard to define ways. There is a reason for this, and it has to do with geometry. The ancient Egyptians constructed their art according to rules, strict guidelines for representation. Human bodies were designed according to certain principles. These helped determine the height, size and shape of each character. To make their figures accurate, the artists used a grid system to plan and arrange their scenes. This grid had a certain number of squares, a certain unchanging number, and the craftsmen used those squares to determine where each body part should go. For example, the knees would tend to appear in square 6, exactly one third of the way between the feet and the forehead. This grid system had two great advantages. Firstly, it helped artists depict people with the right proportions. They could draft a new figure quickly and with confidence. Secondly, it helped the artists create humans consistently, replicating figures across a range of sizes and settings. If you needed one tall human, say a pharaoh or tomb owner, and ten small ones, like servants, you could just do it, a few tweaks to the grid, and you were able to adapt them. This grid system is part of what makes Egyptian art so distinctive, but also consistent across time. The same pattern, used repeatedly, helped to shape their visual culture. It had served the people for centuries, but now the king was changing it. Traditionally, the grid had 18 squares from feet to forehead. 
18 squares, soul to hairline, provided the basic template for human bodies, whatever their context. But Amunhotep changed this, creating a new grid system for use in royal artwork. The old 18 squares were abandoned. In their place, artists would now use a system of 20 squares. This may not sound like a big deal, but it changed the style and proportion of human bodies in some fundamental ways. Take the knees for example. Conventionally, the knees were in square 6, and in an 18 square grid, this was exactly one third of the way up the body. In the Amana style, the knees remained at square 6, but now there were an extra two squares above them. This made the lower half of the body appear shorter than it had done before. Even though the feet to knees were exactly the same height as normal, they occupied less space as part of the overall figure. Because of this, the human form now seemed stretched, limbs slightly longer than normal. The neck in particular was extended, giving the fingers a slightly spindly appearance. A lot of the strangeness of Amunhotep's art is down to this change in what we call the canon of proportions. So Amunhotep's art is not distinctive just for its subject matter, although that is certainly unusual, but because of a subtle geometric change to how he was representing people. This is what gives the human body its very unusual appearance in this period. It's one of the things that makes it so distinctive, and also makes your brain think that something is not quite right with how the form is shaped. Like most things in the universe, art is built on subtle mathematical principles. Changing those principles can have profound impacts on how a person receives a visual message. We know the ancient Egyptians liked symmetry, but they also liked harmonious relationships between objects and figures. When Amunhotep IV changed the mathematical foundations of art, he forced royal sculptors to rethink some of their most treasured skills. It's hard to know how they responded to this at first, but when we get to the city of Amarna, we will start to see those artists taking advantage of new creative freedoms. Egyptian art was on the verge of a mini-renaissance. In the next few years, sculptors and artisans were going to create some of the most famous masterpieces in artistic history.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.